If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn in them to the fifth chapter of the book of Acts. We're continuing through our study, going through this book. This morning we'll begin in verse 12, and Lord willing, go through to the end of the chapter. And I'm just going to warn you in advance that this message is about evangelism. And the press and the thrust of this passage of Scripture this morning is to encourage us to be more faithful in taking the gospel to the lost people that God has placed within our spheres of influence, in our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our community. And my purpose this morning is to not lay a guilt trip on everyone. That's often the case when when we talk about evangelism, we, we just leave weighed down by the guilt that we ought to be doing more. My purpose this morning is to, is to not lay a guilt trip on any of you, but it is instead to give a wide berth to the Holy Spirit this morning, to bring both conviction of sin, if that's the case, and encouragement to persevere in this task, if that's the case. And I want this conviction and this encouragement to come by way of the Holy Spirit as He uses His Word this morning. Because His Word is going to tell us a story about escalating opposition to the gospel. And amidst escalating and intensifying opposition to the gospel advancing in the first century here in Jerusalem, because we're still in Jerusalem. But amidst this growing opposition, what we find are the apostles and these early believers who persevere and remain committed to continue to Proclaim the gospel with clarity, conviction, and courage to the loss that God has placed around them. And, and, and I believe that that's what we're to walk away from this passage with this morning. A, a commitment for us to also persevere and press in to obedience to this mission that Jesus has given each of us in Acts 1.8. When he says that you will receive Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And so you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That we ought to walk away from this passage of Scripture this morning. Recommitted to proclaim that gospel message, the good news of Jesus Christ, with clarity, conviction, and courage amidst the growing an escalating opposition to the gospel that's growing now and the Lord promises will continue to grow even more. So let's read this morning, Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and we will continue through to the end of the chapter. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing." After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them and you might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day, 
in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we invite you into this time through your Holy Spirit to help us come to grips with what you would have us walk away with this morning. And Father, we do want to give your Spirit a wide berth this morning to do what only he can do, what only he ought to do. And that is to bring conviction of sin and encouragement where courage is needed. And so, Holy Spirit, do your work in me, in my brothers and sisters. And Lord, we ask even among those who are here that don't know you by faith in Christ. May the gospel entrenched in these verses shout to their soul that they are hopeless without Christ. Grant unto them, Father, faith and repentance that they might be rescued from what they deserve and remade into a worshiper of you. May you be glorified by everything that is said and taught this morning. May you keep me anchored to your text and so glorify yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what I want to do this morning is, this is a, a relatively lengthy narrative that we're looking at, so I want to walk through the narrative together, making a few comments along the way, but I want to, I want to close by drawing our attention to the two primary takeaways that I think this passage is all about. This, section, this, uh, this passage can be divided into three sections. The first section, as you kind of see it there, is, a, is an opening paragraph in verses 12 through 16. And, and, and that paragraph is the faithful witness that triggers the opposition that we see in this passage. This is what triggers that. This is a summary paragraph. It, it bridges the story of Ananias and Sapphira that we saw in the opening verses of chapter 5. It bridges that story to the story that we find here of the apostles' arrest and imprisonment and release and their trial before the Sanhedrin. So at the end of that story that we looked at last week, in chapter 11, at the end of that, Luke tells us, reports to us, that great fear came upon the whole church and all those who heard of these things. And so the fear of the Lord came upon those who were in the church and those who were outside the church that heard about what happened with Ananias and Sapphira. So the setting for our passage here is, first of all, the fear of the Lord. That's the setting for what we're looking at this morning. After seeing how the Lord had, had dwelt swiftly and righteously with the sin that was in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts, the church those inside the church 
were convinced now that the Lord was worthy of their sacrifice. And those outside the church were now convinced that the God that these Christians were following didn't play and wasn't messing around and was not a God to be trifled with. But, but the setting of this story that we're looking at this morning is also gospel proclamation. Faithful, consistent, persistent, persevering, courageous, bold gospel proclamation. Luke tells us at the end of verse 12 that they were all together in Solomon's portico. And what were they doing in Solomon's portico? All that they have been doing all along, which is being the church. They were gathering day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the breaking of bread, the fellowship and the prayers and all of that. But they were also devoting themselves to gospel proclamation. Yes, to one another, but most predominantly in an evangelistic sense. They were being witnesses of Jesus just as Jesus had commanded them to do Back in chapter 1, they were continuing to preach the gospel just as Peter had been doing in this very same place in Solomon's portico after the healing of the lame beggar in chapter 3. And so the setting here was the fear of the Lord and faithful gospel proclamation. So what was happening? Well, that's what these five verses, 12 through 16, tell us what was happening in the aftermath of that story. Signs and wonders were being performed, verse 12. Verse 13, none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. Verse 13 is saying two things to us. First, it's saying that none of the rest dared join them. The rest there is referring to the rest of those posers who were on the fringe of the church, who like Ananias and Sapphira, wanted to be seen on the outside as as being followers of Jesus, but didn't want to pay the price for doing so. The rest of those folks, well, they bailed at this point. Man, I'm not going to hang around if this is what following Jesus is all about. The Lord had demonstrated that he wasn't playing. And so those who wanted to play bailed. And I think this is a good and right posture for the church of today to have as well, by the way. We are a family of missionaries. And we have been called upon to take this gospel message to the lost around us in our culture and community. And if we become so enamored by numbers and church growth to the point where we uh, 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 adjust our ministry or, or adjust our message in fear of losing those who are just hanging around on the fringes, who are just with us because they, they, they want to look like they're following Jesus, but they don't want to pay the price, they're just, they just want to play, if we adjust our ministry and our message because we want to keep those people because we're so enamored with numbers and church growth, then we have lost something of the focus of the New Testament church. This New Testament church is okay with a reduction in numbers if it means purifying the church and pruning the church and preparing the church to be more faithful to its mission. 
But secondly, verse 13 is also saying that the community around them really thought highly of them. He says in the second half of verse 13, but the people, and that's referring to those outside the church, the people held them in high esteem. The church of that day didn't have an us versus them mentality with those outside the church. It was an adversarial relationship with the world around them. Neither was this church embroiled in controversy over high-profile leaders who have moral failures or disunity and division among their ranks or self-righteous pride or hypocrisy. All things that the world outside levels at charges of the church today and oftentimes rightly so. But this church was known for two things. Number one, proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They were a broken record about the gospel. And number two, they were known for following a God who took sin seriously. So seriously that that Ananias and Sapphira were put to death on the spot for trying to deceive this God. And there in Jerusalem, the outsiders looked at the people in the church and saw these people who didn't run away from a God like that, but ran to a God like that. And worshipped a God like that. And for this, the community around them held them in high esteem. So much so that many of them came to faith in Christ. Look at verse 14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. So the Lord was pleased to bring new believers to faith in Christ. There was evangelistic fruitfulness there by God's sovereign will. And in verses 15 and 16, we see that their ministry to the hurting and oppressed there in Jerusalem mirrored the ministry of Jesus to the hurting and oppressed, who also healed the diseased and the sick and the lame and freed those who were oppressed by demons. As we said before, we don't believe that this healing ministry and this casting out of demons that we see here is intended to be prescriptive for the church today. But what is prescriptive for the church of today here is that we open our doors to the hurting and the oppressed and we both give them the gospel as both Jesus did and these apostles did in the first century and we seek and look for any ways we can to serve them and minister to them. So the bottom line here is that that what what happened as a result of Ananias and Sapphira, which is described in verses 12 through 16, all that that, that was happening, signs and wonders being performed, outsiders filled with fear, the Christians being held in high regard, great evangelistic fruitfulness, and the healing of the sick and demon-possessed. All of this that happened in the aftermath of Ananias, Ananias and Sapphira also served to trigger the jealousy of the religious elite of the day. And that leads us to the second section of our passage in verses 17 through 26. Here, Luke tells of the apostles' arrest, they're released from prison, and the repercussions of that. We're told that as a result of what was happening in Jerusalem namely the fruitfulness of the apostles, that more than ever believers were being added to the Lord, that as a result of this, 
the Sanhedrin, the council there, the religious elite, they got jealous. We're told that they were filled with jealousy. They wanted the people to follow them, not the apostles. They wanted the hearts of the people. They wanted their adoration and their adulation. But instead, that was going to a dead carpenter from Nazareth. And so they were filled with jealousy. So what did they do? Well, they arrested them. They had them thrown in prison. But before they could have their trial before the Sanhedrin, an angel of the Lord, verse 19, opens the doors of the prison and brings them out, sets them free. And then this angel tells them something. He issues a command to them. And apparently a command from an angel of the Lord is like a command from the Lord. It was authoritative to them. And what did the angel say? Verse 20, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life which is such a beautiful way of saying he told them to go preach the gospel. He told them to go preach the good news of Jesus and tell the people how they can have life everlasting in spite of their sin. I would imagine that this would have been incredibly encouraging, right? This would have been incredibly encouraging to these apostles to continue to be bold and courageous in their witness. But it would also reinforce the fear of the Lord. The, the, the fear of the Lord of, of, of a God who can open the doors of a prison by sending an angel to do that. To fear that God, not man. They had been set free from prison. God had miraculously opened the cell doors, unshackled them, and set them free from their imprisonment. How could they not be bold and courageous in their witness for Christ? And church, as we, as we search for boldness and courage in our witness for Christ, we would do well to be reminded that we too have been set free from prison. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued from the punishment of sin that we all deserve, which is eternal judgment apart from God, if you've come to faith in Jesus as your only hope for rescue from that, then He has miraculously opened the prison doors and He has set you free. He has set you free and unshackled you from the grip of sin and death. As Jonathan quoted from Romans 8, 1 and 2 earlier, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, because of Christ who is in you, by faith, you and I are no longer shackled to sin. We are no longer held captive to death. We have been set free from the penalty of sin and the captivity of sin. Now we are free to live with Christ and to live for Christ. And because of that, we ought to have boldness in our witness of Christ. By the way, we should also note here that this is God's way of answering their prayer requests from the end of chapter 4. You remember when they were released from prison before, after they healed the lame beggar and they threw him in prison once before, they let them go. And they went back and met with the church and the church prayed there at the end of chapter four. 
And what was their prayer? Listen to verses 29 and 30 of chapter 4. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you, Lord, stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And the Lord answers that prayer. And part of how he answers that prayer is he sends an angel to open the prison doors and send them back to the temple to keep preaching the gospel and keep preaching about Jesus. So the apostles obey. Verse 21, when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Meanwhile, back at the Sanhedrin, right? Meanwhile, back with these guys, they're preparing for a trial. They're, they're going to put these apostles up on trial and presumably escalate things from what they did before. And, and when they get ready to have this trial, they come to realize that they're not in prison anymore. Somehow they're, they're free. And the report comes to them that they've been found in the temple and they're preaching about Jesus yet again. So they send the captain of the temple guard to go get them, which he does. But we're told here explicitly that he doesn't use force because they're afraid that the people might stone them. This tells us two things. Number one, again, it tells us about the high esteem that the people have for the apostles. right? That they hold them in such a high esteem that they're afraid that when the captain of the temple comes to get them, that if they use force, that the people who hold them in such high esteem are going to stone them in response if they use force. But secondly, this also tells us and speaks about the willingness of the apostles to go voluntarily. I mean, the captain of the temple didn't use force because he was afraid, but he also he didn't need to use force. Why? Because the apostles went voluntarily. They went without incident. And when I was studying that this week, I just, I just thought and I wondered if the Lord would ever call me to leave my ministry post and be arrested and be taken away in order to stand trial for my faith, would I go willingly or would I fight? Would I be like the old Peter. Remember the old Peter? Remember when Jesus was arrested, he pulled out his sword, and he cut off the ear, and he wasn't aiming for that. But this new Peter is different. This new Peter willingly leaves the temple, leaves this very fruitful ministry, gospel ministry, and goes with these authorities in order to be questioned and tried for his gospel proclamation. Remember what Jesus said to the old Peter. He who lives by the sword dies by the sword, Peter. My father has a plan for this. Peter, don't you know that the father could send me 12 legions of angels to keep me from going to that cross? But the father has a plan, so let's go with it. So now this new Peter here, along with all the other apostles, they're more mature in their walk with Jesus. They're more attuned to the reality that God is sovereignly at work here. And so they go willingly, trusting that God has a purpose for this. And that sets the stage for the third and final section of our passage this morning, verses 27 through the end of the chapter. The Sanhedrin charged them, 
We told you not to preach about Jesus, and yet you're filling Jerusalem with your teaching, and you're trying to bring this man's blood upon our head. In other words, you keep blaming us for his, for his death, which at least tells us that they were listening to something of what the apostles were teaching, because that's exactly what they were saying. You killed this Jesus, and they're going to say it again here. Then Peter stands up as representative of the apostles and answers their charge. We must obey God rather than man. We must preach the gospel. And then he proceeds to do just that. Verses 30 and 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And he says, we're witnesses of these things. We saw these things. We know these things to be true. And we're committed to telling everyone about them, even you guys who have the power to kill us. And how does the Sanhedrin respond to Peter's response? Verse 33, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They'd had enough of the apostles. They wanted to eliminate them. They wanted to be done with them once and for all. And we should note how easy it would have been for them to do so. After all, they had done so with Jesus just weeks earlier. And gotten away with it. How easy would it have been for them to kill off these apostles and put an end to the fledgling church. But God had other plans. And God's plans were to build his church such that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And so what did he do? He raises up this notable Pharisee among them. This Pharisee named Gamaliel. Who, by the way, Gamaliel ends up mentoring another young Pharisee by the name of Saul, who will soon come into the picture in this book. But God sovereignly raises up Gamaliel and gives Gamaliel a moment of logical reasoning. If this thing is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, it can't fail. And if you fight against it, you might even be found fighting against God. So the Sanhedrin take Gamaliel's advice, but before letting the people go, they beat them. They beat the apostles. And they charge them strictly once more, don't ever do this again. Don't ever preach the gospel. Don't ever preach about Jesus again. And they let him go. And of course we have the Apostles' response in verses 41 and 42, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering dishonor for the name. And day by day, they never ceased preaching that Christ is Jesus. There are two, as I said, primary takeaways from this passage that, that I want us to spend some time wrestling with. And I find both of these takeaways in these closing few verses of chapter 5. The first takeaway, I want to give them both to you because they go together. The first is that gospel advance and gospel mission will be met 
with opposition. Gospel advance and gospel mission will not occur without opposition. And then secondly, in light of that opposition, we must remain committed to advancing the gospel with clarity, conviction, and courage. First, gospel advance and gospel mission will not occur without opposition. Will always be met with opposition. Faithfulness to the mission that Jesus gave us, gave the church, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, our Judea, our Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Faithfulness to the mission that Jesus gave us is a, is a road that is paved with opposition and persecution and suffering for those who are faithful to pave it. Jesus said in John 15, remember the word that I said to you. In other words, re remember the lesson that I gave to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul reminded young Timothy that all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we've got our mission. We received it in chapter 1. The baton has been given to us. Be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. But we've also got this promise that when you do so, you will be opposed. What do we do with that? What advice does Scripture offer to a church that is facing opposition to its gospel-advancing ministry. A few years ago, Pastor David Gunderson, who's a pastor from Houston, he wrote an article for the Gospel Coalition where he, he went through Peter, the same Peter, went through Peter's first letters, first epistle, and he chronicled the advice that Peter gave to the first century church that was facing opposition in response to its gospel advancing mission. And so I found this super helpful, and I want to give it to you. I've, I've updated it and, and uh, adapted it, his list a little bit, but I want to give him credit for most of this. So what is Peter's advice to the church that faces opposition to its gospel advancing mission? Ten ways that the church, that we should respond to gospel opposition. First of all, don't be surprised by it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4.12, we read this earlier, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, this isn't new, this isn't strange, this is normal. We should expect it and not be surprised by it. As we said, Paul, Paul made the promise to Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We shouldn't be surprised when the, our, our work and our attempts to advance the gospel to the lost in our neighborhoods, our community, and, and our, our workplaces is met with opposition. We, we shouldn't be surprised at that because we're told to expect it. God certainly isn't surprised by it, and neither should we. Secondly, don't fear it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.14, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Don't fear it. Don't fear opposition. Now, it's easy to say it's hard to do, right? It's especially hard to do when you live in a place where gospel opposition comes from authorities who have both the ability and the legal authority to cause real suffering in your life. 
to take your home, your job, your family, and even your life. But even in those circumstances, we remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And again, the fear of the Lord that was upon them in this setting, in this narrative, from what happened to Ananias and Sapphira previously, is a big part of the setting of this story that we find here as the apostles are enduring suffering for the name of Jesus. But for us in the church in the West, it's usually the fear of man, the fear of rejection, the fear of being ostracized, the fear of ridicule. But if Jesus' words are good enough for those who are facing real persecution and real suffering for their attempts to be faithful to Jesus' mission, then his words ought to be good enough for us as well. We ought to fear God, not man. Third, keep watch over your witness. 1 Peter 4, the very next verse that we didn't read, 1 Peter 4, verse 15 But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Sometimes Christians aren't respected because they're not being respectable. Sometimes the world says that Christians are hypocrites and sometimes the world is right. Gunderson writes in that article, sometimes our opponents see our failures more clearly than we do. He goes on and says, if you're a racist, you need to repent. If you hate gay people, you need to repent. If you're rude or gossipy or arrogant at work, don't get all blustery and claim persecution when a coworker calls you on it. Let us own our sins and repent when needed. Jesus can and will forgive you and change you. Don't let a bad witness, don't let your unrepentant sin destroy and sour your witness for Christ. Number four, keep loving each other in the church. 1 Peter 4, verse 8 and following, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. I thought this was an interesting piece of advice that Peter had for the church that faced gospel opposition. But isn't it true that when the heat turns up so often in the church, we turn on one another? When a church faces challenges, they are tempted to turn on each other and fight each other. So we should guard against this temptation, especially when opposition heats up. Paul tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood, and that includes one another. So we shouldn't battle each other. We should persevere in loving one another. Five, also love your enemies. First Peter 3, verse 9, he says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Bless. For this is what you were called to do. As Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The best way to imitate Christ is to treat people well when they wrong you. Loving your enemies means treating your enemies like Jesus has treated you with grace and love and compassion. Number six, trust God and do good. Two points from Peter's first letter, 1 Peter 4, 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And then 1 Peter 2, verse 15. 
For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Gunderson writes this, keep doing kingdom work. Keep serving each person you meet. Keep loving everyone who crosses your path. Don't try to silence the critics and skeptics by just trying to yell louder than them. That's good. Trust God and do what's right. Remember that example is the loudest voice in every room. Seven, make a defense for your hope. We all know 1 Peter 3.15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for the hope that you have in Christ. Number eight, be gentle and respectful. Be gentle and respectful. At the end of that verse, verse 15 of chapter 3 of 1 Peter, he says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Sharing the gospel with an unbeliever oftentimes will require difficult conversations, but that doesn't mean that we have to be difficult people. The gospel message itself is offensive. We don't need to help it be offensive more by being rude or insensitive or impolite or adversarial. Number nine, remember the persecuted church. Remember the truly persecuted church. 1 Peter 5, verse 9, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We should remember that there, there are those who are suffering real persecution around the world. And then number 10, have an eternal focus, an eternal perspective. 1 Peter 5, verse 10, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore confirm strengthen and establish you and then first peter 1 verse 13 set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ when our attempts to fulfill the mission that jesus has given us to take the gospel to the nations and advance the gospel among our lost neighbors and co-workers and community when our attempts to be faithful in that are met with opposition even if it is hostile and violent opposition, and even and especially if it results in our suffering, we would do well to remember that this is just for a little while. It is temporary. But God has called us to his eternal glory in Christ. And so we must have an eternal mindset and set our hope, as he says, set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Remember back in Revelation chapter 12, as John is talking about uh, the defeat of Satan, the accuser of the brethren, the great deceiver of the whole world. As he's finally defeated, John writes of the martyrs in that section in verse 11. And he says, and they, the martyrs, they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they, love, for they love not their lives even unto death. May that be said of us. May that be said of us. That we conquered him who opposed us. Which ultimately is not flesh and blood. But the great accuser of the brethren. That we conquered him by the blood of the lamb. That is by the gospel. By the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and by the word of our testimony for we love not even our own lives unto death 
Gospel advance and gospel omission will not occur without opposition. <clears throat> and so we need to be ready for it. We need to expect it. We need to not fear it. We need to trust God in the middle of it and remember that it's just temporary and our eternal home of glory awaits us. And then the second primary takeaway, that in light of that opposition, we must remain committed to proclaim the gospel in whatever settings God has us with clarity, conviction, and courage. When the high priest finally had the opportunity to ask them the question of why they were doing this, he said in verse 28, we strictly charged you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What a great testimony to their faithfulness to Jesus' mission. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. May that be said of us as well. That we fill our community with the gospel, with the teaching of the good news of Jesus Christ. May God be glorified in and through our church in that manner. But how does Peter respond? The same way as when they told him not to speak of Jesus in chapter 3. We must obey God rather than man. Again, the fear of the Lord was greater to them than the fear of man. And at the end here, the apostles are beaten. This is a real beating. This, is, this would have been a, a, a public flogging of sorts. They're publicly whipped. And then they're commanded once more, don't you ever do this again. Remember, remember last time they, they, they had been told that? They had been jailed. Not beaten, just jailed. This time they're jailed and beaten. And, and, and they're told again, don't you ever do this again. And the insinuation is, it's going to get worse, guys, if you don't obey us. And their response in verses 41 and 42 is both instructive and inspiring as well as humbling and convicting. They've been publicly beaten. And here's how they respond. They left the presence of the council with probably the wounds still visible. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy of suffering for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ, the Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus. And they didn't cease preaching and teaching that he is the Christ. Those two are inseparable, by the way. They, they go together. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for Jesus, and so they did not cease preaching and teaching that the Christ is Jesus. In other words, the, the, the honor the honor to suffer for Jesus Christ compelled them to persevere in gospel proclamation. Why? 
so that they might be counted worthy to continue to suffer dishonor for Jesus and so they might rejoice even more. It's as if the passion of Christ, the, the, the suffering of Jesus was so fresh on their minds here, having just come from that just weeks earlier, that they were hoping that they too would be considered worthy of suffering for him. And after all, Jesus had promised that this would happen. In all of the gospel accounts, not just the synoptic, but all of them, including John, the writers of the gospels record Jesus promising this very thing would happen. Listen to how Matthew records Jesus' words in Matthew 10. He said, beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not who you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, the father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And up to this point, since Jesus had ascended, the apostles had been faithful. They'd been faithful witnesses, courageous even. But until now, they had not suffered dishonor for the sake of Jesus. And so this beating, it's not as though they enjoyed it, but they walked away rejoicing because finally, Finally, they, considered, they were considered to be worthy of suffering dishonor for Jesus' name. And it was such a genuine rejoicing. This isn't fake rejoicing. This is genuine rejoicing. Why? Because it compels them to keep preaching Jesus in the streets of Jerusalem, knowing that what, will, what it will probably earn them is more suffering. And as we go through the book, it will. Do we think this way about suffering dishonor for Jesus when seeking to be his witnesses in our world? And by the way, this isn't talking about just generic suffering. Suffering because of sin or suffering because there is evil in the world or natural disaster or disease or hunger or anything like that. This, this is speaking of a specific kind of suffering. The kind of suffering that attends an obedient and faithful follower of Jesus Christ as they take the gospel to the nations, to their neighbors, their co-workers, and others in the community who so desperately need that gospel, and they are met with opposition. And that opposition comes in the form of suffering, suffering dishonor for his sake. But for many of us, maybe most of us, we're wondering, when is this suffering going to come for us? When are we going to be considered worthy, counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus? 
it's promised to come if we are faithful to advance the gospel among the lost. And so if there is no suffering, if there is no opposition, then it begs the question, is it because we're not being faithful to advance the gospel as we should? Does the absence of gospel opposition in your life and in mine betray the reality that there is a sin of silence regarding gospel proclamation? Wide birth to the Holy Spirit here. But if that's so for you, then our response to this passage must include repentance of that sin. It must include repentance. And asking that God would give us courage, boldness, and desire to faithfully be His witnesses wherever He sends us. In our neighborhoods, our workplaces, in our community. And as the gospel begins to advance, opposition will come. And when it does, may we rejoice that we've been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. Let's pray. Father, you know that this passage has been used by your spirit to elicit confession and repentance in my own heart this week. I'm such a sinner, and you know that. You're not surprised by that. I so need the gospel, Lord. This gospel reminds me that I've been forgiven for that sin of silence, that I don't stand before you, Lord, based on my ability to try to be better in evangelism. But I stand before you made holy by the perfect righteousness of your son Jesus that is credited to me through faith in his shed blood and his victorious resurrection as my only hope for rescue. But it is this very same gospel, Lord, that now compels me to want to be a faithful witness. So I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, there are those among us here who need to repent. And we have not been faithful witnesses for Jesus. We have missed gospel opportunities. For whatever reason, the fear of man, busy schedules, just self-centeredness, a focus on our own schedule, maybe even holding up ministry as, a, as an excuse not to share the gospel with lost people. And using those very same excuses, Lord, to, to not develop relationships with lost people in our neighborhoods, our 
our workplaces, our community. So as to take advantage of gospel opportunities. Lord, forgive us. We are so thankful that we don't stand before you today. We are not right before you today because of our ability to do better in that regard. We stand before you today because of the gospel. And Father, may that gospel truth and the grace and the mercy and the compassion that you have shown to us now compel us to take that good news to those who also are so desperate for it. Oh God, would you count us worthy to suffer dishonor for your name by being faithful witnesses of you? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.